0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that we can gather here this morning, that we can spend time gazing into your word. I ask as we look At Ecclesiastes, we might see the immeasurable riches that are found in every page of our Bible, that you might use it to sharpen our minds, to grow our affection for you in our hearts, to give us a deep desire to share the good news we have of Christ with everyone we come into contact with. We ask now that your spirit would speak to us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, this morning we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Let me read these verses for us. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. "'Because they have a good reward for their toil. "'For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. "'But woe to him who is alone when he falls "'and has not another to lift him up. "'Again, if two lie together, they can keep warm, "'but how can one keep warm alone? "'And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. "'A threefold cord is not quickly broken. "'Better was a poor and wise youth "'than an old and foolish king "'who no longer knew how to take advice.' For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. The book of Ecclesiastes that we've been in is in many ways, an entire book of the Bible that's having a conversation with the first three chapters of Genesis. So the writer is wrestling through different parts of life and his own existence, and when he comes back to time and time again, is wrestling through Genesis 1 through 3 and having a conversation with the opening to our Bible. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, begins by giving an account of the creation of the world and all that's in it. Towards the end of that creation, God places two distinct pieces of his created order in a garden. Adam and Eve, the first humans, who, like every human after them, bears the image of their creator. So Adam and Eve are part of creation, but we see from the very beginning that they are different and unique in that God chose to make them and nothing else in his very own likeness. What we see in Genesis in the beginning is that it's idyllic, it's peaceful, it's perfect. God says over and over again, it's good, it's good. And then when Adam and Eve are in the garden, he says, it's very good. But of course, it didn't stay that way. The only prohibition given to Adam and Eve was not to eat from a particular tree that was growing in the garden they called home. But after being tempted by a serpent, they both ignored that prohibition and chose to eat from that tree instead. And the problem is that the rebellion was not just a matter of choosing a different diet than God had prescribed. It wasn't just an issue of God had said you should eat an apple and they ate an orange. Rather, their sinful action questioned whether or not God could be trusted. Because he had told them, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. That this tree, though it's growing in your garden, is not for your consumption. But when they looked at the tree, in their own estimation and in their own judgment, it looked good to eat. And so eating of that tree wasn't just an action of eating a piece of fruit. It was an action of questioning if God was truthful. If he really had their best interest in mind. But the moment that that fruit was eaten, the perfection of the world they lived in was shattered. And sin entered in and erased all the peace that had just moments before had hold over the world. And where there was once abundant life, there was now the dreadful reign of death. And then in the third chapter of Genesis, God comes and he confronts Adam, Eve, and the serpent in the garden. And in that confrontation, he lays out what this new sin-stained world would look like. So there's going to be strife in your relationships. Relationships. There's going to be pain in your childbearing. There's going to be futility in your work. And then eventually, to cap it all off, there's going to be death. Death wasn't originally a part of the world as God made it. When he said it's very good, death was not a part of that creation. But now, in sin, death was a part of the world. And Ecclesiastes comes in as an entire book, having a conversation with those opening chapters of the Bible... Because Ecclesiastes is a book that knows a Genesis 1 creator, but feels a Genesis 3 pain. The writer is aware of a God who is righteous and made all things, who has fashioned men and women from the dust of the ground in his own image. But the writer experiences the futility of living in a world that groans under that dreadful reign of death. This book is a reflection on the reality of living in a Genesis 3 world. In particular, Ecclesiastes 4 serves as a magnifying glass that examines the consequences God laid out for Adam and Eve when he confronted them in the garden. In this chapter, the writer has already grappled with the reality that all people will die. He even picks up some of the same language that God uses in Genesis 3 and says, dust to dust. God took us from the dust of the earth, but eventually we'll die and we'll return to that very same dust. So he's grappling with the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. That is a sin we now all share in. And as we come to this part of chapter 4, our passage revisits a problem that we've already looked at. And the writer asks, what's the purpose and lasting meaning of all our work, all our effort? When we spend our time and our energy in a job or pursuing achievements or fulfilling what we believe our calling is, what's the result? In chapter 2, he observed that he could accomplish oppressive things. He could build monuments and establish a vast empire. But all the energy he expended did not produce a satisfaction It was more permanent than any other pursuit. And here in chapter 4, he once again looks at work, our labor, our achievement, our striving. And upon inspection, he finds what he's so often found before. Vanity. Emptiness. Fleeting contentment. So as he looks at our work and our striving here in chapter 4, He identifies three ways that we work in vain, three ways that our work produces vanity. So I want us to look at those ways of working in vain this morning and wrestle through with the writer of Ecclesiastes living here in a Genesis 3 world. The first way to work in vain that we see is work with no rest first way to work in vain is work with no rest. Look at verse four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. His observation is hyperbolic. He says all work is just a result of envy and jealousy of just wanting what your neighbor has. But we know that at times work and skill are a gift of God given to men. We know that when he instructed Israel to build a tabernacle and a temple, that he gifted the artisans with the skill in their craft to make the tabernacle and the temple something to behold. But the writer of Ecclesiastes, remember, he's, he's a wisdom writer, and so sometimes he'll speak in hyperbole to try to make his point. And here he just says, When I look out and I just see all the activity that men and women conduct, it just seems that all of it is because of envy. It's all just something we're due to doing to chase after what other people have. When he looks out at all the ways we spend our time and our energy, it seems that all too often working hard is done for no higher purpose than simply staying ahead of your neighbors or having more than the people around you. The motivation for work comes directly from looking at what others have and then feeling discontent with what you have. So you say, I'm going to work all the more. And this problem of envy and jealousy isn't just a small problem. In fact, it's big enough to get billing in the Ten Commandments. If you remember, those commandments that God gave Israel to sum up the entirety of his law can be summed up in ten words. The last of those is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. God knew that for his humans living in a sinful world far too often our motivation would come from being unhappy with what he had given us because we saw what he gave somebody else. So even in summing up the law to Israel in Ten Commandments this idea of envying or having jealousy for what your neighbor has makes an appearance. And it's something that If we look at our own lives, if we can be honest with our own hearts, and if we can even just look at the world around us, we understand that this wasn't just a problem for Israel, it's a problem here today. Today, we even have a phrase where we say, keeping up with the Joneses. It actually comes from a comic strip in the early 20th century. So we know at least in America, they've been struggling with this problem, at least since that early, but probably earlier, keeping up with the Joneses. That is to say, those neighbors next door that have a nicer house, maybe they have some nicer toys or things. They have that vacation home up in Wisconsin, the timeshare down in Florida. He has the job title, that has executive and vice president in it somewhere. We like to look constantly at what other people have and use that to drive us to get more so we can try to keep up, so that we can try to prove that we're just as good as, as anyone else and we're just as able to earn as anyone around us. And the result of this is that if you look at our country, what you'll see over time is factors that work against us for living happy lives. We have at this point in time a higher debt per household than at almost any other time in our country's history. That when you look at the average debt that each household carries, it's higher than it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago, as people seek to take out more and more credit to get things now with money that they'll try to get tomorrow. And there's obviously several factors that go into a rising debt level, but one of the things you can look at to understand this number is the average square foot available per household member. What I mean by that is take however many people live in your household, take the total square footage of wherever you live, divide that by the number of people to see how much space does each person have. And what you'll probably find is that you have more space than someone 50 years ago would have had. In fact, on average, since 1971 till now, We've almost doubled the amount of space per, square, per person of square feet. That is to say that a family of four would have a house twice as large now than a family of four in 1971 would have had. Because we look out and we think, we need a bigger house. This one's getting a little tight. It's a little small. Also couldn't help but notice, but the neighbors put on that addition. So maybe I even need to move and get another house. That'll finally have enough space. And we think if the house is big enough, if it's nice enough, if we remodel it so that we can come by and and have all our neighbors, they can see the the new kitchen we have and we can show it off a little bit, then we'll feel pretty good. all that work that we've put in to establish a good situation for ourselves will really make us happy. Again, that's that's a pursuit that we have been chasing as a country relentlessly for centuries, to try to keep up try to get more and more stuff even if we have to take out debt to do it even if we have to fill up a credit card so that we can have that stuff now even though we have to pay it off tomorrow we want more and more things because it looks like somebody else that we can see has more than we do and we can't rest happy and satisfied until we have at least as much as they have if not maybe a little bit more today to add into that mix we now also have all sorts of social media, which really doesn't give us anything new other than just a new way to do the same old thing, and that is envy what others have. And study after study has shown that the more you consume social media sources, the more that your happiness will decrease because people will put up the best, most polished versions of their life and the most exciting things that have happened to them and present them As the normal standard of their living. So you look at that and you say, wow, this has got to be the fourth time this year my friend has gone on vacation. And what you don't know is that they just took a hundred pictures on their one vacation and they've posted 20 of them at a time for the past year. But to our perception, it looks like every four weeks they're going out of town somewhere. Or whenever they get the nicest, newest things that somehow makes an appearance. And you think they must just have a nice new thing every day. And you start to try to compare your standard of everyday life to someone else's highlights. Thinking that it's their standard. And suddenly this ability to see and share with everyone just becomes another way for us to see all the more what other people have. So that we can be jealous of that and envious of that in our own hearts. and Try to work harder. The problem is is that at the end of this chase, what the writer finds is still just emptiness. This envy, this drive leads to a continual cycle of working harder and harder because you always just want a little bit more. Instead of looking to see how you can be content with what you have, you learn to focus on what you don't have so you can go and change it. And suddenly your work and your motivation to go out and to earn money and to get that promotion, to get a raise comes from a place of discontentment. And the problem is you will always be discontent so that you then work with no rest. You work and you work, but no matter how much you work, there's always someone that has just a nicer thing or a newer car or something a little bit more than you do. And you think, if I had that, that's the hurdle I have to jump over to finally be content. So the writer of Ecclesiastes looks and says, it seems that all our striving just is because we're comparing ourselves to everyone around us. But he sees a better way. Look at verse five. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. At first, it may seem that these proverbs are at odds with one another. In verse five, we have a fool. In verse six, we have someone who has quietness. Should you stay active and work hard and not be like the fool who does nothing and starves himself, or should you fill your hands with quietness instead of toil? It seems they can be at odds, but instead, the writer understands the wisdom of moderation. There is a time and a reason to work. Don't be like the fool who's lazy, holds his hands and says, ah, we'll figure it out. And then eventually, in vivid imagery, this says he eats his own flesh, which is a way to say... He leads himself to his own starvation because he doesn't work enough to even gather to supply his own needs. So, on the one hand, don't, don't be the fool who's lazy. But on the other hand, don't be the one who's restless. Instead, understand the gift of quietness. There's a time to work hard, but there's also a time to rest. And again, we even see that in the opening chapters of Genesis. That God, who does not weary or grow tired, still finds time to rest. He creates the world in six days, but on the seventh day, he rests. Not because he was so exhausted, but because as he was creating the world, he was also showing the pattern of what will make the world work. The pattern of our world is a world where we grow weary and we need rest, but then we can take rest. So, what the writer's arguing for here is that instead of just working out of envy, tirelessly chasing after more and more and more, understand moderation. There is a time to work. You don't want to be the fool who has nothing to eat. Oh, but how much better is it to have quietness and rest? Envy will leave you ragged moderation leaves space to rest. Adam once worked in a garden where he could rest and eat from a bountiful garden. But in Genesis 3, the ground begins to oppose his efforts to harvest food, so he's left to toil. He now has to work harder, because when he goes to get fruit, he'll often get weeds. So God designed a world for rest. But in the Genesis three world it's that much harder to even get rest. But God in His grace has still given us time and space for that. It's given us time for quietness, for rejuvenation. So for us, do we stop from our work long enough to rest? Do we try to find our limitations and know when to say, I've I've got to take a break here. I've got to find a way to build in more space. There will be different seasons of life where we won't get as much rest as we hope we can. But that's just us living in a sinful world like Adam did, where the ground opposes our efforts. But even in that, God, in his grace... Still leaves us in a world where we can rest. Even as you go to sleep every night, even if the sleep is not enough, can you stop and realize this is a gift from my Creator that even for a few hours, I can stop from the toil of this world to rejuvenate? To a weary, beleaguered people, even in the midst of a sinful, broken world, God still gives the gift of rest. Don't work with no rest. The second way to work in vain, work with no companionship. Look at verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. In this example, the man who is working and toiling is completely alone. The writer even specifies, just so it's clear to us, he doesn't have a brother or a son, which would have been the two closest relationships that you could have that might have benefited by getting an inheritance. This person who's working doesn't even have those close relationships. He has no friends, no family, and he has no one to leave all of his stuff to when he dies. He's alone. And also, he's a workaholic. He works hard. He works around the clock. He's amassing a fortune for himself. But because all of his time is taking up in gathering money and riches and wealth, he has no time to actually spend and enjoy any of what he's gathered. Because he's all alone, no one else is going to benefit either. So all of his efforts, his early mornings and his late, late nights are just work for work's sake. They provide no pleasure for him and no benefit for others. And I think there's another trap that we can fall into with our work that has a similar result to this man. Maybe you do have others. Maybe you're not alone. You've got family members who benefit from your nine to five. Maybe you do have relationships and friends and loved ones. I hope you do. You're not like this man who's all alone with no one, but you still work all the time. You can't stop. And eventually, what happens is that your work schedule begins to choke out the relationships you do have. So you don't start alone, but eventually, you function as if you are alone because your work leaves you too busy and exhausted to enjoy the relationships of family members and friends. One of the results that we've seen from the last year is that work from home has amplified this problem. Again, several studies have shown that people are working both more hours during the workday and also more days during the week since they've started working from home. And that even as a workforce transitions back to the office, the extended hours still seem to be in effect for many people. That now we're actually working more than ever because the divide between work and family got broken down and all just kind of melted together and you were always on call and you always could pull up your email and see that next message to respond to it. And suddenly there was no clear stopping point of when do I stop from my work and go to my friends and my family? And then when do I start again? It all just rolled together into one big blur. So we might even be working from home in the same house as family members, but having even less time to spend with them because our work is calling us away but to the person who is alone and has no one else, or to those who have isolated themselves from relationship, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, your work is in vain. That making a living without relationship is not the life God has designed you for. Being able to work and bring in money, but have no friends or family that you enjoy being around that you spend time with that you have a relationship with and companionship from is not what God has designed you for God has made you for relationship he's made you for friendship in Genesis 2 again back at the beginning chapters of the Bible God had made the universe the world he had filled it with all sorts of things time and time again he said it's good it's good good. The first time we see that pattern break is when he's made Adam. But Adam doesn't have an Eve. God says it's not good. It's not good that man's alone. So from Adam God makes Eve because he has made human beings for relationship and connection to one another. And even in the Genesis 3 world, where those relationships can get messy, and our friendships can often bring us headaches and troubles that we don't want to deal with and strife and disagreement, where we have to work hard to maintain connections, we are still built to be with other people. So to either be alone or to stay so busy with our work that we have no deep connection with others is to live in a way contrary to how God has made us. As the writer of Ecclesiastes looks at this poor man who is alone, he sees several ways we benefit from relationship. Look at verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. When we're in relationship with one another, we get to share with one another. That others can benefit from our work, but then even we can benefit from others' work. That oftentimes when we combine our energy and our time... We have more than two people who just tried to go it alone. That two people can share what they have with one another, and they also have a companion in their life. Verse 10 For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. We benefit from a relationship with others because we support one another when we stumble. And as human beings, we will stumble. We will make mistakes. We will wrong others and we will hurt others. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, for those who has a companion, for those who have close friends, they can support one another in those times. Those who are close, those who are good friends with one another, don't point and laugh when the other stumbles and messes up. They don't rub it in their face that that you've gone and made a mistake. Rather, they stand and they say, let me help you get back up. A good friend will go to another friend who has made a mistake and said, let me help you get back onto the right track. And a friend will stay with you in the midst of your own mistake and look at a mess that you've made. And A good friend will say, what can we do to make this right? You can't do that alone. Another way that we benefit from a relationship is comforting one another in hardship. Using the example of those on a journey, in verse 11, the writer says again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? This is an image of people traveling on a journey at a time when it would take many days to get from place to place because you're going on foot. You don't have hotels to stop in along the way. You're probably camping outdoors. And if you've ever been camping, you know what it's like to be exposed to the elements. And at times how frightening it can be just to be at the mercy of whatever weather is coming along your way. So if it's a cold, chilly night, when you're in the middle of a journey, a friend is someone who can help keep you warm. It's one who can comfort you in hardship. And again, it's an analogy that he's using of a journey to show us how human relationships work to say that there will be times when maybe it's not even that we've made the mistake and messed up, but we're going through something in life that leaves us vulnerable, where we're hurting. And a friend is someone who comes along and there's a comfort in that time. says, I am here just to be present to be with you in your hardship because we've been designed for relationship and connection with other human beings. Another way so we can protect one another in danger. Verse 12, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone to withstand him, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. It seems that the writer of Ecclesiastes here is, is quoting a wisdom proverb from the day. You can see that the progression. One, two, three. One man will fall. Two will withstand. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It has great strength. And there's times in our life that we're threatened. We're in danger. It might not always be physical danger, but some sort of threat is present in our life. Friends and companions are those who come along to fight with us, to advocate on our behalf, and to help protect us so that we can then protect them when they're in danger. Again, God has made us for relationship. He's made us to be people that share with one another, that support one another when we stumble, that comfort one another in hardship, and that protect one another in danger. God has made us for fellowship with himself and fellowship with others so that we need people around us. It's not a weakness to need others. It's you living out how God has designed you to be. A weakness is trying to be a lone wolf that thinks that you've got everything covered. You don't need any protection from someone else. You don't need anyone's help when you mess up. And you never need any comfort because whatever trouble comes your way, you can handle it just fine. Thank you very much. That's not how God has built you. God has built you to share those things and those burdens with others. We see this most clearly in the church here, what we're doing now, but also the fact that God has established a church family. Across the world and across time, God has saved individuals, but then adopted those individuals into a family that we might fellowship with one another and encourage one another. A troubling phenomenon that has grown in recent years are Christians who believe they can faithfully follow Christ, trust in him for salvation. They can live and walk according to his word while having nothing to do with the church. The reason that's troubling is that when you read the Bible, you understand that to walk according to God's word is to walk as God's people. That Jesus himself said, I am starting my church, a gathering of people who follow me. And when you see the pattern of Acts That as the apostles move out, they don't just move out so that individuals might be saved. They move out so that individuals might hear the good news and then form church families wherever they live. So the pattern of Acts is not just people coming to faith. The pattern of Acts is churches getting planted all around the world. The church is given as God's gift to his children for us to be supported and encouraged by one another. And that together, as a body, we might display God's love and mercy. And it's really clear why we need one another. Because our weaknesses and strengths are different. You can see that when you're in this room. If you are a part of this church long enough, you will start to see what other people's strengths are. And you'll start to understand, hopefully, if you're honest, what your weaknesses are. And even as I look around this room, I know we have people who have a strength of hospitality that will always outpace my own. They are the warmest, most welcoming individuals in any room they walk into. And as a church family, we benefit by having people who can welcome others in if it's a skill that we're not as strong in. We have some in this room who have a strength to look at God's word and teach it to the rest of us. To make it clear and plain so that we can understand how God is calling us to live. So we don't just have to go alone and when we hit a troubling passage, just kind of close the Bible and say, I don't know. I don't know what that says. God has given us the gift of other people who can see his word clearly and communicate its meaning. So we see in the church how God has built us to be in connection with other people. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, if you're going to try to just work as someone who's off by themselves, you miss out on that. And you're just living in a Genesis 3 world where relationship means trouble and headache. So I'm just going to try to avoid that as much as possible and go my own way. But again, it's not how God meant it to be. The third way to work in vain is to work with no permanence. The writer illustrates this shortcoming by telling a story. Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. No longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun. Along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after wind. Many commentators have have tried to decide if this story is a retelling of some other biblical account. Some have pointed to the imprisonment of the youth here and said that perhaps this is about Joseph back from Genesis, who was delivered over by his brothers to slavers, was eventually thrown into prison in Egypt but then was released. The problem is, is that Joseph never became king in Egypt. He was a ruler with authority, but not a king. Others have pointed to David who rose from humble youth to a great king. But when you look at it, there doesn't seem to be a a biblical character who really fits this description all the way. Rather, it seems the writer here in the style of wisdom literature is telling a story like a parable to illustrate his point two main characters, a king and a youth, and they're opposites in every way. One is old, one's young. One's rich, one's poor. One's foolish, one is wise. And the unexpected twist is that the youth is the one who's wise, not the old king. And perhaps the old king wasn't always foolish like he is now, but at present, it seems he no longer listens to his advisors and those around him to try to gain wisdom. So you have this wise youth and this foolish king. And eventually, it's the wise youth who's able to rise up to the station of king himself. And when you look, he seems to be over a list of just unending subjects. The writer says, I looked out at all the people of the world. And this king was king over all of them. His kingdom seemed to stretch as far and wide as you could see. Again, this is might not be a story about a a specific biblical character, but certainly we can understand that a writer writing Solomon's wisdom could envision a kingdom that seemed to stretch out with no end. And so on the one hand, the king was a fool who lost his kingdom and the youth was wise and was able to rise to this great, vast, powerful empire. So in some respects it seems that the youth was better off than the old king but the nagging problem for both the youth and the king remains you pass away and eventually you're forgotten that at one time anyone on earth seems to know who this king was that had risen up from humble beginnings it seemed that anyone you talked to would have been his subject but eventually he's going to pass away and future generations are not going to talk about him they're not going to rejoice in who he is Early on in this sermon series, Adam used the example of looking back your family tree, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. And if you think about it, just some math here that I did check because I was nervous of making a mistake. You have four grandparents, typically. I don't know if there's exceptions. I don't know how it works, But typically, you have four grandparents. And I, I can name all four of my grandparents. I was able to meet three of them. One passed away before I was born. Two passed away when I was fairly young, but I still remember them and and talking to them somewhat. I still have one grandma who's still alive. She, uh, just as an aside, is 91 years old, and she thinks that I am a preacher at a megachurch in Chicago. So (laughs) don't tell her any different. So I have four grandparents, which means I have eight great-grandparents. I can name some of them. I know where some of them were born and the, roughly the year they were born and the year they died. I have 16 great-great-grandparents. I don't know if I can name any of them. I think maybe one. But I certainly don't know any details of their life. And the math just expands from there. 32 great-great-great-grandparents. And on and on it goes. So again, just a few generations back, there were 16 people that were directly responsible for me being here today. And they were here less than 150 years ago. And I can't name them. I don't, I don't know anything about their life. I wouldn't be here without those 16 people, but I can't tell you anything about them. And if you draw that logic forward, that means that in just a few generations, anyone who is here because of you probably won't know who you are. At most, you might just be a name and some dates on a family tree. On one hand, we can sit there and say, that's one of the saddest things we can think through, how quickly we're forgotten. But that's the problem that Ecclesiastes has been sitting in. It's been reflecting on the the very end of God's confrontation with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden and he tells them all the hardships they will face, all the ways that they will be set against one another and the world will be set against them. And that the serpent and the woman will have strife between them. And to cap it all off, in Genesis 3, verse 19, God turns to Adam and says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. From out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because we live in a Genesis 3 world, we're all destined for dust. And working on this earth to gain only what you can get on this earth. Inevitably ends up in losing everything you've gained. Because someday you will be gone and dust. And some of your possessions might stick around. But eventually they're going to erode away as well. And you'll be forgotten. So the writer of Ecclesiastes looks out and says it seems that even working for fame or some sort of status that seems like a vain, empty thing because even the greatest things you could accomplish, a couple generations go by and they'll be forgotten. So we sit here. Intention. Intention with Ecclesiastes and intention with Genesis. Because in Genesis 3 world, work suddenly becomes this restless pursuit of more and more, of trying to outdo your neighbor. In a Genesis 3 world, work becomes lonely toil because suddenly relationship is hard and complicated. And we have strife with others. In a Genesis 3 world, work becomes a chase for something you can't keep. We're just working for things in this world, but eventually you're going to die and leave this world. But we have to remember... That a Genesis 3 world is also a place in which God says to the serpent, Eve's descendant will defeat you. We have to remember that a Genesis 3 world leads to a Luke 2 world, where shepherds are told, today that descendant has been born and is your savior. We have to remember that a Luke 2 world leads to a John 19 world. Where that Savior, hanging on a cross, takes the punishment for sin and says, it is finished. We have to remember that a John 19 world leads to a Matthew 28 world. Where women are standing at the grave of that crucified Savior and are told, he's not here, he's risen. We have to remember that a Matthew 28 world leads to a 1 Corinthians 15 world, where Paul looks back on that resurrection and says that for any who believe, they all died in Adam, but they're now alive in Christ. And we have to remember that a 1 Corinthians 15 world leads to a Revelation 22 world, where the Apostle John looks at all those who have been made alive in Christ and says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Like the writer of Ecclesiastes, we live in the pain and toil of a Genesis 3 world. But we have the sure and finished hope of a Revelation 22 world that is coming. So our work is no longer a relentless pursuit of that which we cannot keep. Our work is the good things that God has given to us, planned from before the foundation of the world, that we might be a people made alive, displaying his glory to the world around us until we worship him unendingly into eternity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of work that even in a sin-stained world where it often is difficult, you had a plan all the way starting back in Genesis 3, starting even before the foundation of the world, that we might be saved, and that rather than being left dust to dust, we might gaze upon your face into eternity and worship you forever. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.